Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Owasso, Oklahoma. Our passion is to show that grace changes everything in Jesus Christ by equipping you to rest in worship, grow in community, and rediscover your calling. To join our body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at trinityowasso.com. Okay, friends, when you are able and willing, would you please grab a copy of God's Word, the Bible, and open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can be seated just for a moment as we regather and find our seats. Over the next several weeks, we are going to be talking about reconstruction of your faith and the doctrine of the resurrection. Is the resurrection real? How do we reconstruct our faith? And contrary to popular belief, as Christians we do believe that resurrection is real and that is a physical resurrection at the end of time when Christ comes again. We are resurrected with him. And the resurrection is to rule and guide our living in between the times of Christ's first coming and of his second coming. And so when you get to 1 Corinthians 15... It's chapter 15, which means there's 14 chapters before and a whole lot of history. Paul is preaching to a church in Corinth that was a total mess. A lot like me and you. People had worldly views of ethics. There was a man in this church who was sleeping with his father's wife. They had a weird view of propriety. There were women wearing scandalous clothing in the church as though to say I am sexually available to every other man in the church. It was distracting. They were disrupting worship by their worship preferences and style. The rich were showing up to the Lord's Supper early. They didn't have to work like the poor had to work in the hourly day labors. And so when the poor came to worship, they showed up and there was nothing left of the Lord's Supper. The rich had eaten it all. The church was a mess. And so in chapter 15, Paul, in a beautiful way, brings all of their attention and says, despite all of that, I want to remind you of something. And it is the kernel of truth that I want you to hang on to. It's the kernel. And so would you stand with me as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word, and it's given to you in love. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, 
and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. Marsha Evans took part in a paid experiment when she was in college and when she got to the lecture hall they gathered in a room and the, the proctors, the grad students said here's the experiment. We are going to give two groups of students milkshakes. Students on the right side of the lecture hall are going to get a non-fat healthy substitute milkshake that's 170 calories. Students on the left of the lecture hall, you are going to get a 600 calorie milkshake that is an indulgent shake that is to be enjoyed. And all the students were like, yes, signed up for the right psychology experiment this time. The story of the experiment. Hang on to that story. Story number two. Recently I visited um, the home of, of one of you. Um, I was in Bill and Stephanie Ford's home. And uh, when I was in Bill and Stephanie's home, I walked into their kitchen. And they had a Berkey water filter. Have you ever seen these little silver, you know, they're like they're little space age silver filters? Right, this little silver filter. And I said, oh, you have a Berkey. And Bill Ford, and if you know Bill, it was even funnier hearing it say, uh, come from him. Bill Ford goes, oh, I love this thing. I never knew water could taste so good. Story number two, the filter. Story number three, Lauren and I are, in the coming weeks, going to have a number of our windows replaced in our house. And if you've ever had windows replaced in your house, they kind of, they, they give you, um, they warn you that it's going to be messy. They warn you that there's going to be dust. And they say, we're going to try the best we can to cover your furniture, protect your home, but, but we can't make any promises. And we also can tell you when we're going to show up, but we can't tell you when it's going to end. Story number three, the story of the window remodel. Now, I tell you those three stories because I want you to kind of hold those stories in your mind as I talk about 1 Corinthians 15 because this church, as I mentioned, was a total broken mess. They behaved in the world um, in, in private differently than they behaved in public. They, they were divisive. They were trying to one-up each other. They were constantly competing. They were, to be quite frank, a lot like some of you have experienced even in this church and perhaps more of you have experienced in the church in which you grew up. There's an unhealthy toxicity about their culture and Paul writes to them and says, you've got to use your gifts to build each other up. Some of you even have incredible gifts of prophecy, chapter 14, to encourage each other. And what draws all these together? It is the principle of love. And so... I just want to ask you, what would it be like for you to have grown up in a church like Corinth? Because some of you grew up in a church like that. Imagine the hurt people must have felt. 
It's not hard to imagine that because I've heard your stories and some of you have heard my own. And Paul in this text takes us back to the core theology and he teaches us three things. Number one, he teaches us what we receive as truth. Secondly, he teaches us how we filter the truth. And thirdly, he teaches us where to take the truth. How we what we receive, how we filter it, and where we are to take it. First, what do we receive as truth? Now Paul says, now I would remind you brothers. The Greek word for to remind you is to take along with you or to, to bring along with you. To, to I want you to call remember what you have, to call it back to mind. I remind you, brothers, of what? Of the gospel. The gospel is the good news. The gospel is not mere moral advice. The gospel is not five steps to be a better husband or wife or have a better marriage or be a better teenager or remain sexually pure. The gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done. And what has he done for us? Jesus lived a perfect life, took upon flesh for us, obeyed the Old Testament law perfectly, and rather be, than be commended for it, he was crucified by the very religious people he came to save. And he died as a sacrificial atonement for you and for me on the cross. And to the shock of his disciples, he did exactly what he said he would do. Three days later, he rebuilt the temple. He rose again from the dead. He was the true temple. And then he ascended and is at the Father's right hand this very moment in flesh interceding for us. That is good news. And it is not to say, therefore, you need to go earn it. It is to say you must hear it and you must receive it. And it's important that Paul says to them, now I remind you, brothers, because... They forgot. And we know how easy it is to forget. You and I forget all the time. And why do we forget? Notice the dynamic that Paul talks about next. He says, in which you stand and by which you are being saved. As a Christian, we are freed from the penalty of our sin, but not from its power. That is, we are justified by faith. Before the Father in heaven, he looks at us and he sees the spotless righteousness of his Son because Jesus did all the work for us. We are free from the penalty of sin. We are righteous before the Father, fully accepted, which is amazing good news indeed. But not from its power. The influence and the power of sin still causes us, in between the times of Jesus' first coming and his second, for us to live in this incredible season of forgetfulness because we forget. We're plagued by sin. And so Paul calls them to continue to remember. And it is brutal to live in this dynamic. Can I just be honest? It is brutal because Satan manipulates and twists our hearts and our minds to think, oh, sin, man, we were taught it never felt good, but sometimes it feels good. We were taught, you know, there's just joy. There's joy in living in righteousness. Sometimes there's a lot of joy in living in sin. And ultimately, we know it doesn't last. Ultimately, we know that it is painful. Ultimately, you know, it goes against what God calls us to do and who he calls us to be because we are manipulated. And 
Paul earlier in 1 Corinthians in chapter 11 says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But when we don't see immediate change in our life, when we still struggle with our addictions, when we still struggle with the idols of our heart, I, I talked to you know, some of you this week. We, you've been Christians for 50 years and you're still talking about the same idol of your heart that you struggled with when you were seven. We get frustrated by that. And the way that you help yourself grow beyond that is to recognize, friends, you live between the times. What do you expect? Don't underestimate the power of sin that's still present in your life. And so Paul wisely says, which you received, that is your conversion when you believed, when your heart was regenerate and you placed your faith in Jesus, in which you stand, that's your justification before Christ, you are fully accepted in his eyes when you believe. And by which you are being saved, not by your good works, but you are continually being made, though progressively, as Nathan taught us last week, more holy and like Jesus. And so Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, let's go back to that college lecture hall and the experiment. How do we remember what is true? How do we know what we are to receive? When Marsha Evans got that low-fat milkshake, she was surprised to learn that both groups were actually given the exact same shake. But when they interviewed the students afterward, the students who had the 170-calorie low-fat shake reported that they got hungrier faster and that their ghrelin levels, that is the hormone in your body that brings hunger pains, was elevated, physiologically elevated. And the people who had the 600-calorie shake, they felt like they were full, they were more tired, they, they reported um, that they were not hungry, but they had the exact same shake. And of course, the grad students just love this experiment because it proved that your beliefs actually can affect your physiology. Now, uh, Dr. Aliyah Crum, who's a clinical psychologist who did the research at Columbia Business School in New York City, said, our beliefs matter in virtually every domain in everything we do. How much is a mystery, but I don't think we're given enough credit to the role that our beliefs play in determining our physiology in our reality. How did Paul have so much confidence that what he received was indeed true? Well, he received it. And he accepted it as true as it came from the apostles. And the apostles had received it from Christ, even as Paul himself on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9, verse 6, received it from the Lord Jesus himself. And why did Paul receive it as true truth? Because he takes us to the heart of the heart of the heart of the gospel, which is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for us. In fact, the truth of the matter is, friends, that no matter how much you think you are operating based upon intellectual logic, even the most logical person in the world must admit that there are assumptions that they take, fundamental assumptions that they take by faith. All of us do this. So the question is not what do we believe, or, or if we believe, but on what basis do we believe what it is we believe? Sociologists have studied this whole idea of, of social conditioning for centuries, and they call it a plausibility structure. That is, that every one of us creates what is a plausible way of interpreting the world. 
And it's a whole other sermon, but this is why so many of our old evangelistic techniques don't work because the plausibility structure of most people today don't leave any room for the supernatural to possibly happen. And this is where the tension lies because it has been barely a hundred years since Scotland has stopped teaching Scottish school children that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that was considered as much fact less than a hundred years ago as the earth revolving around the sun or for us as Americans the battle at Valley Forge. And today it's not taught as fact. And it, it might be included in a religious syllabus somewhere but our reigning plausibility structure has completely changed. And that's why some of you are so frustrated when you talk to your grandchildren or your children about the gospel. Because the old adage, the old ways that you used to tell them, this is true. They're like, uh-uh. My plausibility structure doesn't account for that. Isn't that cute? My plausibility structure doesn't account for that. But it accounts for something. And what does it account for? Uh, uh, last night, our family watched The Beautiful Mind. Have y'all seen that show? The Oscar-winning uh, movie, The Beautiful Mind. It's a story of John Forbes Nash Jr., who's this brilliant Nobel laureate mathematician and who suffers from schizophrenia. And The Beautiful Mind is the story of how he learns to manage his schizophrenia. And there's a, there's a part in the movie where he is trying to assess whether or not he should marry or propose to his wife, um, Alicia. Uh, John Nash in the movie is played by Russell Crowe, and Alicia is played by Jennifer Connelly. And there's a part where he's at the restaurant with Alicia, and, and he says, um, how do I know whether our love merits a long-term commitment? Now, men, may I suggest you never say that to your girlfriend? It's not going to go well for you. It's another sermon. And after she composes herself, she says, well, how big, John, is the universe? Infinite. How do you know that? Well, I know that because all the data indicates it's infinite. But has it been proven yet? No. You haven't seen it. No. Well, how do you know for sure? I don't. I just believe it. And Alicia says, I guess it's the same with love. And what we know about science is partially based upon faith. And certainly what we know about love is too. It's based upon the trust of two people in their relationship together. Right? This is your experience and this is mine. Well, here's another great scientist. His name is Albert Einstein. He said the supreme task of the physicist is to arrive at those universal elementary laws from which the cosmos can be built up by pure deduction. There is no logical path to these laws, only intuition resting on sympathetic understanding of experience. That's the only way to reach them. So without this faith, without this sympathetic understanding of experience, elsewhere, Einstein in his, his autobiography talks about it as, as an um, uh, intellectual love. Without that, science can even begin. We believe in order to understand, as St. Augustine said. And as Leslie Newbegin has written, there is no knowing without believing. And there is... Believing is the only way to knowing. 
Now, one of the reasons why I take so much time to talk about this whole, whole idea of what we receive as truth is to just bake into us the fact that everything you receive as true comes from faith at some level. And so Paul is saying, I want to remind you that the gospel that was preached to you, which you received, hold fast to it. Because he also received it. To receive something is like to take the baggage along. All of us have baggage. None of us have clean hands. We all have carried stuff along with us from the very beginning. You say, well, I'm just going to use information. No, you're not. You're going to use information and what your mama taught you. You're going to use information and what your daddy told you. And some of us, we're going to use information based upon the incredible trauma you may have experienced in your life. It comes with you. And just as Paul commended what he received to the Corinthians, the question for us becomes, what if we receive things based upon wrong information? What if you're here and you don't believe the gospel? You're listening, you don't believe the gospel. What if what you're believing is not as true and beautiful and good as the gospel? Would you open your imagination to reconstruct your faith, imagining the beauty of a God who loved you so much that he didn't just sit idly by and demand works from you, but he gave his very life for you. Would you believe it then? What if this God came and took on flesh for you, knew you by name, loved you incredibly with every million decisions he made on planet Earth, died for you, was beaten and put on a Roman cross as a criminal, stripped completely naked, exposed before the watching world. And he would have done it for you if you'd been the only one to live in time and space. He loves you that much. What if that were true? Would you begin to believe it? What if? What if he then rose again from the dead three days later? Would that help you believe it? Go ask the people. Go search the history annals. Go figure it out. There, Paul says there are 500 people. You can go ask them. There's, most of them are still alive, though some have died. That's what the metaphor falling asleep meant back then. The question is not what do we interpret by faith or what do we receive by faith? The answer is everything to some degree, fundamentally. The question is how do we filter it? And Paul gives us three filters. And when you filter that truth through these three filters, you can say, like Billford said in his kitchen, man, I never knew water could taste so good. True truth, as Francis Schaeffer calls it. It tastes like something you've never experienced but always longed for. Filter number one, he says in verse three, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul filtered it through the apostles and he filtered it through Jesus. Why did he filter it through them? Because they have the authority. And if you're going to reconstruct your faith, the first question you have to deal with is who you're going to believe. Who's your authority? You have one. Name it. For Paul, he calls us to believe in the authority of the apostles and of Jesus himself. Why is it that Jesus in the Great Commission, he says, before he says, go and baptize and make disciples of all nations, what does he say? All authority in heaven has been given unto me. Why do you think Jesus said that? Well, one, because it's true. And two, perhaps because he knew that in our day and age, we would be desperate to look for who has the authority. 
And maybe Jesus is saying it yes to his disciples and yes to their descendants and yes to those who lived in the 3rd, 5th, 9th, 10th, 11th century. What if he's also, what if he said that because he knew that you'd be struggling with authority and Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. And you may be here today wondering who has the final authority. And maybe Jesus said that 2,000 years ago so that you would hear all authority has been given to him. Filter number one is that we receive it through the authority of the apostles and of Jesus communicated to us down through his word. Now filter number two, Paul says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Filter number two is the death and resurrection of Jesus. So whether you're struggling with I don't know, it's sexual ethics or identity or gender issues or trauma in the church or mosaic authorship or issues of creation or some nuanced theological issue, would you just follow the Apostle Paul back to the cross and would you deal with Jesus and the resurrection? And would you start there? And would you filter the truth through that? And I want to invite those of you who have had really, really manipulative and hard upbringings in the church subculture. And I just want to speak to you just for a second. Some of you have had, some of you who have been sexually abused in the church, the, the healing from that is far longer, who have experienced particular kinds of trauma, that's a different sermon and a different day. It takes a long time to continue to heal from that. So please don't hear me making light of that situation at all. I am so sorry that that's been your experience. But for those of us who just kind of grew up in a kind of works righteousness evangelical subculture, what if, what if the gospel was not synonymous with your subculture? What if Jesus was, was asking you to say, come back to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? What if Jesus were to say, hey, take the kernel of truth. Take the kernel and shuck the husk. Just, I, I know that the church is weird. I know that this pastor, that I know, I know. Jesus knows that. What if you just take him? What if you just say, take my death and resurrection. Let's just deal with that. What if the questions that your youth minister asked you that felt, that just heaped you with shame about sexual sin, what if the question was not how do you remain pure, but what if the question was what if you never had that purity to begin with? Dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul takes us into the filter and he uses these facts to say, come back, filter the truth through the authority of God's word and through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That's what Paul is trying to do here for these Corinthians. I know you, he can't even begin to, he's tried to address all these issues and he knows that he hasn't fully satisfied any of them yet. And so he says, come back to the cross. Burial and resurrection of Jesus. And we were on solid biblical grounds to do this because Paul said, I became a Jew to win the Jews. I shucked my evangelical subculture. I gave away what I once was, a Hebrew of Hebrew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, Paul says in Philippians. As to the law, I was blameless, but I count all that as nothing so that the beauty and glory of Christ might be revealed to the Gentiles. He 
became a Gentile to the Gentiles. He shucked the culture in order to say, let's get to the truth. And we can never completely shuck our 20th century Western culture completely. Of course not. But you can at least recognize that that is not the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again for you. And he offers in that the most amazing good news. It is too good to not be true. Would you believe it? Rosalia Butterfield tells her story. She was a lesbian English professor at Syracuse, and she writes, I tried to toss the Bible and all of its teaching in the trash. I really tried, she said. I kept reading it and reading it, not just for pleasure, but reading it from a feminist perspective. And after my second, third, maybe fourth pass through the entire Bible, something started to happen. The Bible began to become bigger than me. And it absolutely overflowed into my world. And I really fought against it. And then one Sunday morning, no different from any other Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover, and an hour later, I sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. I went there very conspicuous of the fact that I didn't fit in, but I really had to confront this God. What do we receive as truth? We receive truth by faith at the most fundamental level. Every one of us do. Everything we receive by faith. What do we, uh, how do we filter it? You filter it through the authority of the apostles and of Jesus and through his death, burial, and resurrection. And when you filter it that way, mm, even the most simple of things like water, true truth, never tasted so good. And where do we take it? You don't simply take it apart. Um, remember those windows in our house? What if in a couple of weeks when they redo our, our windows in our house, what if they take the windows out and, uh, and they, just, they just, they don't replace them? What if they just take them out? In Hawaii, that would probably work for a long time. In Oklahoma, it might, it might work for a little while. In fact, it might work for weeks. It might, you might go, man, I, I got rid of my windows. <sighs> I've never breathed such clean air. It's amazing. And there are some of you who are in that situation. Yeah, I've chucked the faith, but man, it's never felt so liberating. It'll feel good for a time. But as Kim DeRoe will tell you, we're pretty close to Kansas, and Kansas has got some pretty big tornadoes. What happens when the wind picks up? What happens when it rains? What happens when it pours? What happens when those windows, uh, you start to miss those windows, don't you? And you know, for some of you who are reconstructing your faith, what that's like, because now you're searching for the windows. The problem is, you've already in your pride rejected Christianity. You can't possibly go back to those. But what if you can take away your grandma's ugly drapes, and you can put the windows back up, and you can go, ah, I can see clearly. What if you can scrape off all the secondhand fumes or the smoke and cigarettes in that house? And what if you can say, mmm, these are brand new windows that don't have any of that. There it is. There's the beauty of the gospel and the sunlight can break in. What would that be like for you? Paul says, listen, last of all, he appeared to me as one untimely born. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. But his grace was not in vain. 
Even though I worked harder than any of those other apostles. It wasn't me. It was the grace of God. What if God in his infinite loving grace tells you, hey, don't just deconstruct. You've got to reconstruct those windows and put something else there. What's that going to be? Will it be able to help you see? Or will it just blind you even further? Many people have said to me, I, I reached a point in my faith where my faith just isn't very satisfying. This week I met, uh, I told this in the Sunday school class, uh, this week I, I met somebody who uh, grew, up in this, grew up in this town, went to a, the evangelical churches for years, and, and he found himself now, he would moved away to Denver, and he came back, and, and uh, we met at Panera, and he was telling me a story, and he was like, yeah, now, I, now I, I'm converting to Eastern Orthodoxy. Oh, tell me about that. Well, the beauty of the Eastern Orthodox worship helps me begin to put the pieces back together of my evangelical subculture. They, they worship with beauty. The, 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 the guy doesn't talk so long. The, 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 I see in the worship this amazing God, and it's helping me. And dare we say that if you've been hurt by the church, the way that you are healed is also by the church. But it's a church that shows you the beauty of Jesus and allows your imagination to be captivated by it so that your heart can continue to heal. And we are striving to do that here through all of our relationships and our community groups and our liturgy, etc., etc. And I told this friend, I am so proud of you, even though let's have a conversation at some point down the road about the, the distinctions of, of Western and Eastern Christianity and all this. I'm just so proud of you for going, man. That's awesome. He hasn't given up. He's going to where the beauty is. And when people look at this church, do they see beauty? Do they see beauty? Do they see beauty in the way that mothers love their children in worship when they're little and it's hard to love them? Do they see beauty in the way that husbands serve their wife? Do they see beauty in the way that people give generously because all they have is the Lord's anyway? It's not yours, it's his to share and give according to your calling. Do they see that you are uniquely called out by him? Do they see that you've received the beauty of the good news of the gospel? So what will it be? God is able to make all grace abound to us so that in all sufficiency, in all things, at all times, we may abound with every good work and light of the good news. We are to receive the truth that is given to you in love. We are to filter out the religious subculture and to take in the clean water of the grace of God that is offered to you in the good news of Christ's resurrection. What are you to do with it? You're to take it in. You're to drink of it. You take in the gospel the same way you take in everything else that you believe is true about the world by faith. But this faith is not a blind faith. Christ died for you in your place. And he rose again to set you free from sin and death. Amen? That is a truth worth receiving. Let's pray. Father, would you help us in all of our struggles with authority to come back to what you've told us through the apostles and through Christ. Would you bring us back to your word? And would you help us to deal with what you say in your word? 
Would you help those of us who are so tempted to just throw out the Bible? Would you show us how vulnerable we therefore are because everything we believe is true about the world is taken on faith? Oh, Lord Jesus, would you show our imaginations? Would you bust into our life? And would you show us how beautiful it is of those who bring good news like Paul, like community group leaders in this church, like friends, like those who proclaim that we are what we are because of the grace of the gospel. Not to us, oh Lord, not to us, but to your name we give the glory. Father, would you open the hearts of those who don't believe and who are reconstructing their faith to once again place their faith and trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Trinity, please visit our website at trinityowasso.com.